Super. Right. Um, so, um, forgiveness. Now, if forgiveness could be um, kind of put into a bottle um, and you had the job of selling it to people, how would you go about selling forgiveness? Uh, what is the, um, the, the USP, that's what they call it, the unique selling point of forgiveness? Now, if somebody picks up a bottle, what's this? Oh, it's forgiveness. Well, what's that for? How would you answer? What is forgiveness for? What's the point? And they couldn't we? Why would you want to be forgiven? Why? Now imagine though um, you uh, uh, speak out of turn to a friend. Um, and no, clearly you're in the wrong. It was ugly. Your friend is hurt, angry. Now in that moment, why would you want to be forgiven? Now, one answer could be, well, it feels pretty horrible to be in that situation. The guilt is, is pretty yucky. Um, you think, I just want this to go away so I can get on with my life. Maybe that's it. Is that the USP for forgiveness? The, the, does the forgiveness bottle say, forgiveness makes you feel better about yourself? Is that what it is? Because you're worth it. Is it? Now, why would you want to be forgiven? Well, with that question, let's come to our passage in Matthew. We're continuing our journey through Matthew's account of Jesus' life. And now we're on the home straight, um, and the pace really, really slows down here. Uh, Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's been there with his disciples for a while. Well, actually, not for that long, but it's taken a while for Matthew to tell us. And the tension is reaching up to boiling point. At the beginning of chapter 26, uh, Jesus has said, As you know, the Passover is two days away. And the Son of Man himself will be handed over to be crucified. The religious leaders are plotting away in the background. They're trying to find the best way to get rid of Jesus. And, and our passage begins with the disciples um, asking Jesus where he wants to eat the Passover meal because now it is time. In our passage, there are two main themes, really. There's a theme of betrayal and then there's the Passover the first thing we hear is uh, preparations for the Passover. And Jesus says, my time has come. Here it is. Uh, everything he has come for is about to be accomplished. His purpose in the world is for this moment. It is now Passover. And what was the Passover? It was an, an annual festival where the people of Israel remembered a, a foundational moment in their history. Uh, a time long, long ago when their nation had been slaves in the land of Egypt, uh, oppressed under a terrible tyrant, and then they cried out to God and he heard them and he rescued them. That's what they remember in the Passover, the rescue. A family meal coming together to, to celebrate that once they were a people trapped and lost and uh, that they were nobodies, but God pulled them out. He brought them out of darkness, brought them to himself and made them to be his people. The Passover, Jesus was arranging to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. And two things happened during the meal. See verse 20. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, it's the first of two while they were eatings that happens here. The first while they were eating, Jesus makes a shocking revelation about the source of his betrayal. Now Jesus has been saying to his disciples for months now, we are going to Jerusalem. When we get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be handed over to be crucified. I'm going to be handed over to be crucified. At the beginning of our passage, as we said already, verse 2, uh, the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. But now he tells them the person to hand him over will be one of you. 
Now, the second thing that happens in the meal, verse 26, the second time he says, while they were eating, Jesus breaks bread, passes round a cup of wine, and he tells his disciples about the ultimate meaning of the Passover. And that he tells them, really, in a sense, that the Passover rescue from Egypt all those years ago was a dress rehearsal, a trailer, a foretaste, a shadow. But the ultimate meaning of the Passover is the mission of Jesus Christ and him crucified. They finish the meal, they sing a song, they go out to the Mount of Olives, and then there Jesus gives another shocking revelation about betrayal, verse 31. He says, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. Two themes, betrayal, Passover. Let's have a look. Let's dig into them a bit deeper. Betrayal, let's think about that first. Uh, I think here Jesus reveals two betrayals. First one, verse 21, one of you will betray me. Then in verse 31, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. That, that first one is one of the disciples colluding with the religious leaders to have Jesus killed. Now, now we know as readers of Matthew that this has already happened. In fact, just before our passage, verses 14 to 16, we're told Judas, one of the twelve, goes to the religious leaders and asks for money in exchange for information to help them get Jesus. He is the betrayer. He has already done it. The second betrayal, uh, the falling away of all, has not happened yet. It's about to happen. Uh, an armed mob is going to come for Jesus. They'll be led by Judas and the disciples will flee and Peter, as Jesus says, will disown Jesus three times. These betrayals, let's think, how do these um, betrayals compare with one another? What are the similarities? First of all, uh, these betrayals are both made worse because they come in the context of intimate friendship. Now, the 12 are a tight bunch, and, and, and on this night, Jesus deliberately wanted them to be with him on this, for this Passover meal, this family meal. He wanted to celebrate with them because they're his closest friends. And one of them is in the process of plotting his murder. Shocking, isn't it? The, the disciples are shocked. They, they don't know who it is. They're trying to work it out. And verse 23, Jesus says, in answer to the question of who it is, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. Uh, that might be some way to make it plain that it's Judas, but kind of kept hidden from the others in some way. But uh, I, I wonder whether it's this. In fact, that... In the middle of the table was a bowl, and they were all taking their food from the bowl. All of their hands were together in the bowl. And I wonder in verse 23, Jesus is just saying in a more graphic way what he's already said. He's saying it's somebody here at this table in this band of brothers. They're one of these close and intimate friends. It's one of these who will betray me. Picking up on the agony expressed in Psalm 41, which says, Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread has turned against me. One of the disciples, only one was going to do that. And yet then Jesus says all of them are going to abandon him. They're all going to fail him in his hour of deepest need. And, and when, when that moment comes when he most needs them, they will be thinking more of themselves than about him. Now Peter protests, I would never do that. But Jesus says this night before the cock crows, just in a matter of hours, Peter, from now, you will disown me three times. It's the intimacy of the friendship that makes the betrayal so much worse. That's the first similarity. The second, 
and maybe the most obvious, is that both cases are about rejecting Jesus. Now, the instances are different, aren't they? The, the motivations are different. Judas does it for money. The disciples do it for fear, but they all reject Jesus. Uh, the, the third similarity is that these betrayals have terrible consequences. You see what Jesus says in verse 24? The Son of Man himself will go as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. That the wickedness of this betrayal will meet the justice of God. And Jesus is clear, it would be better not to have come into existence. That, that's why it's hanging over, the sentence hanging over Judas is best left undescribed. What then of the other betrayals? These friends falling away in Jesus' hour of need. Let's think about Peter refusing to believe that he would abandon Jesus. He is ready to die rather than deny. But Jesus says, no, three times you will deny me. Three times you will disown me. The, the heavy weight of this really falls when we remember what Jesus said back in chapter 10. He used the same words in chapter 10, verse 33. And Jesus said there, whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. See, what's going to happen is a few hours from now, this Peter, uh, before a little group of servants, is going to say, I never knew the man about Jesus. Well, Jesus has pronounced earlier in chapter 10 that those will now be the words that Peter deserves to hear on the final day. Uh, as Peter is brought to the entrance of glory and the king of eternity will say, I never knew the man. And what's left after those words? Well, what is left is what Jesus has described as darkness, being outside, weeping, gnashing of teeth, sorrow and despair forever. It would be better never to have been born. Now, we could argue which is worse. What's worse, what Judas did or what Peter did? Uh, we could argue about that, but what, does it really matter? They both end up in the same place. These betrayals are alike in the context of intimate friendship, in the cases of rejecting Jesus. They both have terrible consequences. And yet, of course, they are very different, aren't they? They're very different. The first one is about just one. The second is about all. And yet, I think the biggest contrast is the deliberateness of what they're doing. Judas has planned things carefully. Already, he's sneaked away to the chief priest. What will you give me? He's taken the money. And he has been so deceptive that when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, no one is pointing at Judas. They don't suspect him. Now, even when Jesus, in verse 25, says to Judas, I know that it's you, even that doesn't cut him to the heart, and he continues in his plan. Very deliberate. The, the disciples are, are the opposite, aren't they? The complete opposite. They haven't got a plan. In fact, their plan in verse 33, Peter says, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. I will never disown you. All the disciples said the same, and they meant it. That was their plan. What do we make of that? I reckon we feel quite a lot of sympathy for these disciples. Now, the meal has been a trauma of revelation. Jesus, whom they followed, keeps saying he's going to be crucified. And now he says they're going to abandon him, and they're broken. They say, no, we won't. We would rather die than deny and yet Jesus knows them better than they know themselves. Now, they won't accept what he's told them about themselves. You see that? You see that what Jesus is saying to them is that when push comes to shove, 
that they're only going to think of themselves. They, they, they refuse to believe it. They refuse to believe that they're as sinful as Jesus is saying. They, they refuse to accept that they're not as good and faithful as they would like to believe about themselves. So they shut their eyes to it and they go on and do the unthinkable. You, you see, one of the things this account does for us as we read it, as it packs the Passover around these betrayals, it shows all of us something about ourselves, if we will accept it. You see, I think these betrayals are showing us what the nature is of what the Bible calls sin. Now, if we ask what is sin, it's not just a list of bad things. The Bible describes sin as a, as a relationship failure. There's a verse in the Bible, Romans 14, 23, that says, everything that does not come from faith is sin. Sin is a betrayal of a relationship. It's, it's a rejection of somebody. Now, right back in the beginning, when sin erupted in the world, people sinned because they wouldn't trust the one who had made them. They wouldn't take God at his word. They rejected him. That was the betrayal. It was personal. And sin is always like that. We're made by God and for God. And our sin is always a rejection of him. And when we look through history, it seemed most acutely when God took on flesh and entered our humanity and walked among us in the person of Jesus Christ. And, and there is Jesus Christ uh, displaying the loveliness and the compassion and the might and the mercy and the greatness of God. And what do we do to him? Sin rose to refuse him. Our sin, we share this sin. It's sewn into the fabric of our nature. And we see it most clearly in how we respond to Jesus Christ. And just like this passage, our sin too draws terrible consequences. And it's hard to accept. And we look at what Judas did. And we say in our hearts, well, I would never do that. Uh, yeah, I might not be perfect, of course. No one's perfect, but I wouldn't go that low. I would not be that man. Which is, of course, what the disciples said when Jesus told them about their betrayal. Peter, I will never, never, I could never do that. But he didn't know the depths of what he was capable of. He didn't know just how much sin had a hold in the depths of his heart. I suggest neither do we. Now, sometimes, of course, our sin is obvious, isn't it? Really obvious. We deliberately to do what we know is wrong and we plan, we plan to do it. We stick to the plan. We can be like Judas. But other times our sin is just more devious <coughs> More, more self-deceptive. It's, it's our sin. It belongs to us, but it blinds us. And we, we think we are better than we are and stronger than we are. We think our motives are more pure than they are. We think we can manage as we are. And Jesus knows us much better than that. Now, the disciples were going to fail him. We fail him. But he will never fail us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He sees our sin more clearly than we will ever do. He sees every aspect of its awfulness and knowing it all. Well, knowing it all, the betrayals in this passage wrap around what else was said at that Passover meal. Two themes, betrayal, Passover. Passover. Jesus is about to be handed over to be crucified. And he explains the meaning of what of that cross as the completion of the Passover. See, that, that first Passover, remember that every Passover meal was an act, a mighty act of God's mercy. And what happened at that first Passover was, it, it was salvation by substitution. You, know, the, the, you can read up to the build-up to it. There's quite a long build-up to that first Passover in the book of Exodus. Uh, but finally, what happened was that God, 
declared that he would visit in judgment and sin would be punished as it deserved. And yet he said that where a household had slaughtered a lamb and put the blood on the doorpost, God would accept that judgment deserved by the people to have fallen on the lamb. The lamb was a substitute. And so that meant the judgment would pass over those who are covered by the substitute. And the result would be that those people would be drawn out from slavery and brought to be the people of the living God, brought into a relationship called a covenant. And yet a long time afterwards, when the Son of God was born into the world, they gave him the name Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. Now that first Passover was a, a picture, it was a promise, it was, a, it, it was not the reality That event in history of salvation by substitution was shadow and not substance. And we know it because because when Jesus came, his people still needed to be saved from their sins. In our passage, Jesus explains the Passover in light of what was going to happen on the cross. And there are a number of different things that he explains about what was happening. The first thing that he, he explains is that it is all planned Verse 24, he says, the son of man will go just as it is written about him. This is not God making the best of a bad situation. It's not a plan B. This has all been decided beforehand. It is planned. Secondly, it is substitutionary. Jesus knows he's going to be crucified. The, The image of a broken body and blood poured out points to the violent nature of what is going to happen. But Jesus speaks of my blood of the covenant. He's giving his death the same function as the lambs that were slaughtered at the first Passover. He's saying judgment is going to fall and sin will be punished and blood will be shed. But there is a substitute and the judgment will pass over those who are covered by the benefits of the sacrifice. See, one of the most important questions we ever must ask is why did Jesus die? He did die, but why? Was it because the religious authorities plotted? Yes, of course. Was it because Judas betrayed? Yes, of course. But it was much, much more. It was his mission, his name to save his people from their sins. Uh, The sins of his people warranted their destruction under the judgment of God. And Jesus came to save and he did it by going to the cross. You see what he says in verse 31. He's quoting from the Old Testament prophet Zechariah. These events are fulfilling what had been spoken by the prophet. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. If you go back to Zechariah, you'll see that that passage tells about a day when a fountain is opened to bring cleansing from sin. And and then in the prophecy, God says, speaking to his sword, Awake my sword against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me. God says, I will strike the shepherd. Why did Jesus die? Now, over and above all the plots and the schemes of men, the death blow was delivered by God himself. You see, Jesus' death was pure justice, divine justice, because God had planned, Father, Son, and Spirit had planned in eternity past that the love of God would send the Son of God to stand as a substitute for sinners and to suffer their place for the to suffer in their place the wrath of God, to bring about the great salvation of God. Now the blood of Christ would be poured out for many. Why? What was the purpose? The third thing. It was for forgiveness. 
That's the result, isn't it? The result of the striking of the shepherd, the breaking of the body, the, the shedding of the blood. It is for the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins achieved when the penalty for sin is carried by another so it can never be carried by you. Or all that horror of, of which it would never, it'd be better never to have been born. All that horror taken away by the death of Christ and never can be laid upon those whose sins are forgiven. Forgiveness, who is it for? Who gets it? Fourth thing, it is to be received. Now the meal, Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body. This is my body. The breaking of his body under the judgment of God for the forgiveness of sins, that's what the bread represented. And what did he tell them to do with this? Take and eat. Same with the cup, the wine representing his blood poured out for the forgiveness. What did he tell them to do? Drink from it, all of you. But this is electrifying because this is the meal where everyone's sin is being exposed. Everyone's sin is being put out on the table. What can sinners do about their sin? The answer is right here. Take and eat and drink. Take and receive what Christ has done. And so we ourselves get drawn up into this drama because our sin is real. Our sin is deeper than we, than, we, than we dare to delve into. And if what Christ has done, if what Christ has done remains outside of us, we have no share in its benefits. Now the fact that Christ died for the forgiveness of sins means nothing unless we receive it. And we can have a meal in front of us that is full of nourishment and goodness, but we will not be nourished unless we eat. We must feed on Christ, and to feed on Christ is to trust him, to turn to him in repentance and in faith, and seek from him alone the forgiveness of our sins. We go to him and we ask for forgiveness. We don't ask for him to excuse us. We don't say to him, I couldn't help it. I didn't mean it. Somebody else caused it. We don't tell him about extenuating circumstances. We accept his judgment that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we're included in that. I am included in that. And the wages of our sin is eternal death. And there are no mitigating factors. And then we ask for his salvation. Please do not count my sin against me. Apply to me the benefits of what Christ has done for the forgiveness of my sins. So what about you? Now, no one can receive this for you. No one can do it for you. What goes on in your heart as you hear these things? Now maybe the measure of our personal response lands on the question that we asked at the beginning. Why would you want to be forgiven? Why? Why would you want it? What's the USP for forgiveness? Does the bottle of forgiveness say forgiveness makes you better, feel better about yourself? Well, you see, there is a fifth thing that Jesus explains about his death. You know, the, the fifth thing he explains is the end and the destination and the goal of it, the reason for forgiveness. And the fifth thing is fellowship. And Martin Luther King in the civil rights movement in the US, he wrote this in the middle of it. He wrote, we can never say, I will forgive you, but I won't have anything further to do with you. Forgiveness means reconciliation and coming together again. 
Forgiveness is not something that is left hanging. God doesn't say, I will forgive you and have nothing more to do with you. And when Jesus is given his name because he will save his people from their sins, he was given a second name. A second name which captured the essence of salvation. They called him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus was going to die. His death would be sufficient to cover the sins of all his people. And he says to his disciples, verse 32, after I have risen, after I've done it, after I've achieved it, after I've risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. After he's completed the payment for their sin, risen, he would seek to be with them. It's put more fully in verse 29. In verse 29, he says, I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. It's hard to capture the enormity of what he's saying here. Uh, But it's demonstrated throughout Matthew's gospel. uh, As we've seen that Jesus has proclaimed and demonstrated the inbreaking of of heaven's kingdom on earth. that The beginning of the restoration of creation's paradise. We've seen it in what Jesus did. uh, as, As he banished sickness and sorrow and suffering and sin and the forces of evil. They fled before him because he's the king of love and the king of glory. And all of it is pointing forward to the thing that our souls ache for. The new world, a world that is without the mess of this world, a world where happiness doesn't crumble with death, a world where there's no more depths of sin in our hearts that we can't explain. But most of all, a world where we can be with God, a world where we can bask in the eternal pleasures of being with the Almighty, knowing him as our Father. And the Bible describes it as a feast, a coming together to celebrate. Jesus is talking about that feast here sitting around the table with his people, celebrating. I I think it's the only time we hear about it being called the kingdom of my father. And and I wonder whether it's because Jesus at this meal is so fixated on the family aspect, the intimacy of it, a trigger in his mind of the intimacy of the feast in the world to come. Now, if if you've offended your friend and you're clearly in the wrong, and they're hurt and they're angry, why would you want them to forgive you? Isn't it because you want their friendship again? Now, if they forgive you but want nothing more to do with you, it's hollow. The forgiveness of our sins is not the end, it's the entrance. Christ's death with all of its horrors are aimed at bringing you to God. Christ's death and everything he did is aimed at gathering you with all of your brokenness and all of your fallenness and and, and then gathering you to cleanse you and to mend you and then finally on that last day to present you into the presence of the eternal joy of the Almighty. Now if we want forgiveness of sins for anything less than that, we're, we're aiming too low, we're missing the point. And Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. He sees right into the depths of our hearts. He knows it all. And knowing it all completely, he offers his life to get you for himself. Now, like those disciples, we will fail him. But he will never fail us. And so what do we do? Well, we stand in awe of him, don't we? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found. Was blind, but now I see. And we're going to sing that, but as we, the musicians come up, I'm going to pray for us.
Our God in heaven, please move our hearts to receive what Christ has done for us. Thank you so much for your dear son, our saviour. Thank you so much for the forgiveness of our sins that brings us to you. Thank you for the hope we have of being with you forever, secured by our saviour's love. Amen.